Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NYC Real Estate Podcast. This is episode 38, and I'm super excited because it's not only the first episode of 2021, but I've got a great guest today, and it is Joy Goldman from Joy Renee Interiors. And before I get into you, Joy, welcome to the podcast, by the way. Thank you so much for having me. Super pleasurable to have you. Um, let me just tell everybody that if you don't know how to get in touch with us, you can email us at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'm going to put links to all of my social media inside the description of the podcast. I would be uh, so grateful if everybody would share and subscribe and also maybe even rate us five stars. That'd be amazing. But Joy, why I wanted to have you on today is you specialized in uh, interior design for uh, a whole host of things between, I know that you're between New York City and South Florida and you do a lot of um, both for personal uh, renovations, but also for buildings and condos, co-ops, HOAs, that kind of thing. So a lot of my business, as you know, tends to be towards co-op and condo. And we're going through this in a lot of spots now with renovations and the best practices and, you know, things to look for and process. Uh, that's where I would kind of lean on somebody like you to go and put us through that. But before we actually start, do you want to, I know that you've had a lengthy career um, doing this and you're very uh, specialized. So do you want to give everybody listening kind of a uh, synopsis of your past, how you got into this, what you're interested in in the future and anything else you want to share? Sure. That would be great. Um, well, like I said, again, thank you for having me on here. It's, it's so nice to be able to talk to this audience, you know, specifically I, um, focus on both residential commercial and hospitality interior design. Um, in South Florida, where I'm based right now, um, we do everything from residential to country club design, restaurant design, common spaces, workspaces. Um, I know in up, in up New York, uh, your focus is on co-ops and condominiums. So, mm -hmm. you know, I really want to, you know, kind of dive into that with you at some point. But basically, um, we are a boutique interior design firm. And, you know, we deal with every detail from start to finish with construction, renovations, um, build outs, decor, framing structure, both interior, exterior spaces. Um, you know, we do full service project management. We work alongside custom builders, architects, local artisans um, to make really great usable spaces for our clients. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's pretty much what we, what we focus on. Um, you know, I work both, like I said, in New York and in Florida and really everywhere, um, especially now because everybody is working remotely, we also are offering e-designs. Right, and this right. is just a whole nother uh, facet to our business, which is really important. And I, you know, I'd love to tap into that as well, because again, we're dealing with some challenges now with being able to be on site for our clients, but we really, really uh, worked very hard at perfecting the working from home aspect of this. Although yeah. we'd like to be more on site, um, it's really great that we have the abilities to communicate and do zooms and mm -hmm. be able to just work everything's easy to do now i mean you it, can fully run a project or a business a company a any a client from almost 100 percent digital you know and that, that's the unfortunate side effect which is a positive that came out of this whole COVID situation was that we really have learned how to operate differently just everybody it's not just an industry but um, can I ask you a question? Sure. So you're an interior designer. Um, what's the difference? Because I know that there's a lot of interior decorators. What's the difference between an interior designer and an interior decorator? Obviously, I actually love getting asked this question because <laughs> it's, it's something that kind of weighs on me and it's a fine line between talking about it too much locally, but you know, you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or insult anyone. So really, you know, let's start off with the beginning, a, a decorator. A decorator is somebody who, um, I'll say it in layman's terms, wakes up one morning and says, I'm pretty good at this and I'd like to decorate people's homes. It's somebody who probably has a great knack for design, a great mm -hmm. eye, um, has maybe done some personal projects or done some stuff for friends. And somebody said, 
hey, you should do this as a career. So it's great that we have decorators because quite honestly, without decorators, I wouldn't be able to refer some of the jobs that I can't take on or jobs that might be too small where I can say, hey, you know, I have somebody who's less expensive, maybe Mm -hmm. somebody who doesn't need to take on a huge job, but you know, they are very important to our business in some respect. So there's no disrespect to decorators in that sense. Um, An interior designer, however, has all of those skills, but actually has a degree, is trained and is by state by state allowed to do much more work. Um, You know, down in South Florida, uh, I'm part of ASID, which is the American Society of Interior Designers. That's um, an accreditation nationally. Um, but in New York, you have to be certified in something called NCIDQ, um, which is a national organization for interior designers. In New York, if you have the NCIDQ certification, not only can you do all residential, commercial, hospitality, interior design, but you also have the ability to almost act as a general contractor, which allows you to be the one hiring all of the contractors and and whatnot. And we can kind of dive into that a little bit more, but essentially a decorator and a designer are different in their certifications, in their experience, in their knowledge base. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's going to lead to a different uh, point of uh, fees because with anything else, I mean, if you go, if you went to an architect, that's one set of fees. If you go to a designer, that's another set of fees. If you went to a decorator, that's a, a lesser set of fees. So as you said, for the smaller jobs and maybe for the more in- inexpensive jobs where they don't need all of your services or you know whatever threshold they have for their, for their project, which you could push people off to, it's helpful for you to work in concert or to just pass that off because it just makes sense. Um, what's the, how, you said training for the... Um, for the designer uh, certification, what kind of schooling is that? Well, a lot of people will do just as if they were an architecture major, they will do an undergrad program. Mm -hmm. Um, If people have not done that as the undergrad program, which is kind of funny, people always laugh and say, well, did you do this in college? I actually went to university of Miami. I was an opera major, very, you know, long, long away from interior design, but obviously very creative. I was an artist all growing up and always had a knack for interior design. Um, When I stepped away from the music business, I said, I wanna do something really creative. But for me, just being a decorator wasn't enough. So the Fort Lauderdale Art Institute and also um, Palm Beach School, uh, there's a few different programs here, but there's a ton of programs in New York, which you know I can give you a list of them if people are interested in finding out more about that or how they can do it locally. You know, I can always provide that to you as well. but essentially, you know, after you, if you decide not to do it as an undergrad program, there are two-year programs where you can do it remotely, where you can do it on site, mm-hmm. um, and obviously continuing to do any CME courses, continuing education courses, um, are really important to this business. Yeah. If you have any certification, which if you're ASID or NCIDQ, you have to keep up with you know the the growing trends. If you want to be green certified, lead certified. Um, there's always the ability to keep schooling just in anything, like with with anything, you know, the more you learn, the more you can get. It's similar to what I go through. I'm, you know, I have my, uh, state license for a broke, I'm a New York state broker. I am a Florida salesperson and I have a Florida community association management license. So I'm doing three sets of, um, continuing education every two years and they stagger a little bit, but yeah, I mean, if you're going to be certified in something, you have to keep it up. And especially at the state level, uh, they're super on top of that. And now that everything's automated, you can't get past the system anymore. You can't be like, Oh yeah, I attended those classes that they actually do check and it's uploaded. So, all right. So, so kind of moving the, the, the conversation along, um, you know, I'm dealing right now with a bunch of buildings where, we have the boards specifically asking, okay, and this has been on the table for a few years in a lot of cases where they've just, the exterior jobs have taken precedence over the interior jobs. And now that a lot of the exteriors are complete, 
they're saying, okay, now it's time to look at the um, interior design of the common areas. You know, we have the lobbies, we have the elevator, we have the hallways, all of these things work in concert together. And depending on what type of level they're looking to improve their aesthetics, it, it's always interesting for me because obviously every building is different. It's unique. They have their own, you know, lifelines and the shareholder unit owner makeups are different. Um, so you have some areas where, you know, it could be in Tribeca and you have a lot of people that bought in originally when it was in the 1980s and they're at a different income level and they can't really take on the debt that let's say the person coming in now at, you know, the $6 million purchase price, because that's just the market now, but they're in totally different leagues. So it's, you know, navigating the two, the, the disparities of what people are willing to put into the common areas, but convincing them that, okay, it's all about curb appeal. It's about increasing the values, you know, it, just like we would with, okay, let's replace all, all the lighting with LED lighting. Like what's our payback period? We have to always try to figure out, is there a positive to this beyond, oh, it looks nice. Can we introduce these changes as a positive to the, um, the value of the building, the value of the apartments? You know, These are all things that we're looking at holistically. And I guess those go into the choices that you're gonna present the client with, with potential. Um, from a perspective of a designer who's worked with the HOAs and the co-ops and the condos before, do you, I'm sure you have in your mind best practices on how all of these things should take place, you know, timing wise. Like when is it a good idea for the building to call in a designer? When's it a good idea for them to call in an architect? Or how do we interact with the general contractor? Are you the general? You know, those are all the questions right. that come up. Um, do you want to walk us through uh kind of a sample of what you think the process should look like from our perspective and from the board's perspectives on these? And then when do we introduce choices and you know information to the residents and the shareholders and the unit owners to make sure that we're giving them a lot of information, we're giving them the choices that the board wants them to have, but we're not stepping them into the process so that it just can't ever be decided because you can't have 80 people deciding on one aesthetic. What exactly. would you recommend? So first and foremost, this is, a, this is such a great question because obviously I, like you said, I, I deal with HOAs and boards all the time. So this is something that is so important. So getting right back to the very beginning, you've decided as a board, Hey, we need to update whatever that looks like. The most important thing is obviously the board needs to decide on how much money they're willing to allocate for whatever it is their wish list is. But then they say, okay, I have this budget here. I have this list here. Now, what do I do with that? Well, who do you call first is always the number one question mm -hmm. that I would say I love to answer because I think that there will be certain people who have different answers. But having done this before, I see where the mistakes have been. A lot of people will say, let me go call my contractor. And while I respect contractors, they're the ones who are really getting their hands dirty. Um, the reality is, is that they are the ones who are getting their hands dirty. They're not the ones who deal with budgets and allocating of funds and how to best purchase things and how to best source things out because they're really the labor. And that's what is so important to know. We are the quarterback. And when I say that, it it's the most important thing. So the quarterback isn't the one who is going to be the running back or the doing the tackling or doing anything else like that, but they're the most important right then and there, because they're going to make sure that everybody is doing what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it, how they're supposed to do it so that we have a win at the end. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that before you even hire an architect or a general contractor, because quite honestly, they're going to want to know what the scope of work is, what you've selected, how much you need of everything, what the drawings look like so that they can give you an accurate, an accurate proposal. Oftentimes I'll hear, well, this is what happened when we hired a general contractor. We hired them and then they ended up being 30% more. Right. They weren't necessarily 30% more because they just wanted to, you know, increase your costs at the end. They were 30% more because they weren't given all the information from the beginning. They're 30% more because they didn't know that your design was going to be different. So whatever it is, it's very important that you bring in a designer first 
to look at your budget to say, okay, this is going to be too much. This is going to be too little. This is the best way to spend your money and then bring in the architect and then bring in the general contractor. Quite honestly, you don't even need to bring in the architect until you've gotten the green light from the board. So going right back to, again, the next step, you've now brought in an interior designer. You've shown them your budget. You've met with maybe two or three people from the board. The first thing that I would always say is let's go through all of this. I can, as a courtesy, come up with a preliminary budget for you, Mm -hmm. taking those numbers, taking the scope of work, allocating those numbers to what I actually think that each item is going to cost. Right. And oftentimes that's a big shock to them. They said, oh, I didn't know that it was supposed to be that. And then we kind of start to peel away the layers of the onion and get to a cleaner scope of work. Once Mm -hmm. we kind of establish the, the, the scope of work and, that, and I'll get back to that on another side, what the scope of work should be. But once we decide what the scope of work is, then I will bring in the right people. There may be a construction crew that I know might be better for this team. There might be an architect that I think is better for this type right. of job. And basically we all come together as a team. It's very important that once that process starts, that you take away the 20, 30 person board and create a committee. That mm-hmm. committee would be the design committee. The design committee might be three, four people tops, I would say, who are going to be the point people for the job so that when we do come up with a plan, before we even present it to the board, that we've come up with a plan that all four or five of us, myself included, the general contractor included, that we all are on the same page, that we love the ideas. You know, when you get four people to decide on something and they all love something, trust me, yeah. You're going to get pushback from a board no matter what, at least one or two people who have, you know, maybe a little bit too much time on their hands, but oftentimes it's usually smooth sailing from that point. So creating a design committee is imperative. Right. Well, let's jump in just as a quick thing. Let's jump into the committee issue, but typically in a bylaw in the bylaws of either the co-op or the condo, the board president usually has the authority to just create a committee. And typically committees have at least one member of the board sitting on them so that that that's like the ear to the board. And then the committee itself, as you said, like they won't make the decisions on it, but they will recommend to the general board. Okay. We've gone through this. We've, we've, we've gone through the data. We've gone through the information. This is, you know, based on different choices, this is what we recommend. And then the board is the entity that makes the decision and whether or not they choose to get the, you know, the overall shareholder or unit owner approval that's on them and the process that they want to go. And we could talk about the the best way for that moving forward after this, but um, just so that everybody understands, like how does a committee get formed? What is the, the, they don't make the decisions. They just refer it out to the board for the board to make the actual final decision. Correct. So obviously, you know, this committee, it, like you said, we're all sitting there together. We're, we're coming up with the best practice. We're finalizing a proposal. But at the end of the day, once that's all done, we start putting our boards together. And if it's a big enough project where, you know, as a courtesy, we're going to start doing all of this before anything has even been paid to our firm, you know, we kind of see the writing on the wall that no matter what, we're going to be doing the project. So, you know, I know that you also have to get several bids for designers and whatnot. So usually you've got a few of these happening. So by the time we're even with the committee, we've essentially been hired we just don't know what the scope of work is or what right. material is and, and whatnot. So we're really on phase two at this point. Yeah. Phase three would be that we sit with now your board and we present them. We present them an idea, usually an overall idea, maybe not the exact material that we're going to be using, mm-hmm. but an overall conceptual plan, whether it be, you know, some floor plans, digital boards, a few samples of material, you know, fabrics. It's just a overall vision board of how we see things. If they need to have a board in place once we start the proceedings that we have a digital board, a you know high glo- you know a high digital rendering for them mm-hmm. to display, we'll obviously do that at the next phase so that everybody can see it, you know, coming soon or under construction, you know, so that people can get excited about what's happening and what they've spent money on. Right. Um, so that's really the next the next phase. So obviously now you've presented it to the board. The board says, great, we love it. 
And then you just move on from there. Um, do you give multiple, how do, in your experience, I know I've, I've done it, but from here where the board is like, yeah, that's great. Do you usually give two options and then have both of those kind of presented to the, um, to the constituents of the building and then they choose by majority or in your experience, is it mostly the board making the, the decision on uh, how to proceed and they just, okay, this is how we're going. We're not going to put it out there, but we believe as the people that were elected on behalf of the people that we're representing that the decision that we make is going to be the best one. Uh, yeah, I think that it's a really, really, really sticky situation to give all of the people who live there or even all the people on the board too many choices. Customarily with the design committee, we will bring them three to four conceptual ideas, whether it be a modern look, a transitional look, something with all white, something with all gray, something dark, just so they can kind of gauge that we have a few different options, what we both, we all think would look good. It just depends upon, oh, we really like that. Or, oh, we think that that's the best look. Yeah, and we yeah. kind of go from there. So by the time that we are getting to the board and showing them what we've come up with, we've kind of already figured out what we all think in the design committee plus myself would be best. Mm -hmm. If the board comes back and says, none of us like that, well, then we have three additional options to kind of go back and discuss and tweak things here and there. They may like something, but not like that sample floor. Okay, well, when we get to that, we'll bring you some other floor options. So it's really just a conceptual plan at that point. Right. And, you know, there's always lines of communication. Obviously I've done, you know, quite a few commercial spaces. Uh, we just completed last year, a very large um, club in Boca Raton, Florida. And, you know, having that experience with a board, I think that that board meeting when they were making the final decision was attended by about 400 people. So obviously mm -hmm. you're not going to have 400 people going on. Oh, we love this. Yeah. But as the process starts, you're, you're just not going to have everyone love everything, but you have enough people and support between the board and the design committee that are happy with the project. And usually that's enough for us to keep going. Right. Um, okay. So we've made the decision on which design board and which scope of work we're going to be using. How do you then start the project? Are, are you traditionally going to be running the project once it starts and acting as the project manager? Um, how often are you typically involved in visiting the buildings? You know, we've gone through various designers um, throughout the New York City area that specialize in this as well. And, you know, everybody has their own unique way of doing things. What's typically your process? Okay, well, before we get into the process, um, I just want to touch upon one other thing that you were talking about, um, about budgets and spending money and, you know, what's the most important thing. And, and then I'll kind of get back into that. But I think that it's important to understand that one of the main differences between a general contractor and an interior designer is that we understand who the people are. We've understood what the needs of the people who are inside the buildings and the surrounding areas, what those people look like. We understand demographics. We understand if we have an HOA come to us and say, look, this is a 150 year old building. We want to look more approachable and more desirable in our community. Maybe it's important that I focus on the fascia of the outside before anything on the inside. Maybe it's important that we focus on the lobby before we focus on any of the hallways, you know, so that you get that curb appeal and that initial intent of what your goal is. Yeah. So it's really important that you understand that we understand as interior designers, what that client is going to need in order to achieve their end result. So it's really important that, you know, that I kind of talk about that and we can get back into that if you have any questions about that. But to answer your question that you just said, what do we do? And as you know, everybody works differently, but my process is that we are the project management. Anytime that we go into a project right from the very beginning, we make it abundantly clear that we are the quarterback. We are the project manager. We are overseeing the project. So customarily anywhere from every day at 8 a.m. when the guys show up to start working or coming back later in the afternoon to make sure that things were done a certain way, 
or checking in throughout the week pending when installations are being done, we're on site. We're making sure that things get installed properly, delivered timely, and that the clients see our faces. And if they have any questions, concerns, issues, that we're on top of it to address that. And then again, as the quarterback, now we can be the client's advocate, which is the homeowner, the building, you know, whomever we are, you know, dealing with as a point person, that we are making sure that we are being their advocate. There's an issue, we're addressing it. Um, There's a question on the budget. So that's the most important thing that you understand. It's also allocating the funds, making sure that every subcontractor, contractor material that's being purchased, you know, whether it be being done through us and then we bill back the HOA, or if they've given us a credit card that we're doing all the purchasing. So we're doing the project management, the purchasing, the receiving, setting up all deliveries and installations. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're doing everything, you know, we're, we're one-stop shop. And as a boutique firm, you know, it's better to have less cooks in the kitchen, quite honestly, and just knowing the ins and outs of the whole project. That's my process. Yeah. It's a lot harder when you have a house, when you, I'd imagine when you have a house where you have two homeowners, when you have a board that has up to 11 members, you know, so it's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, you know, it's, it's a lot of personalities. It's a lot of differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, if you go into seven board members, apartments, not one of them will be the same. So how do you, that's probably also the, the trick is, you know, instilling a design style that they're bringing you on for and convincing seven people that, would probably, you know, maybe five of them would never put that style in their apartment because that's not their style. And then convincing them that it's good for the building, you know, that, and then you right. imagine 150 apartments times uh, design aesthetic 150 times. I mean, that's got to be for you um, a challenge to try to not sell the design that you're pushing or not pushing, but offering, I should say. And then having everybody come to a consensus, but all you need is a majority. So if you could convince the majority of the board to go with, you know, a specific design schematic, then I feel like you've won. You've done a good job because it, by de- just by default, it's going to be you're you're going uphill because you're trying to convince seven, nine, eleven, however many people that your idea is is a good idea. And do they often come back to you with? Um, multiple revisions, you know, we don't like this. We don't like that. Like how, what's the typical back and forth that you see from a board before the project is approved? It's funny. We really have not had all the much pushback. I think it's very important to kind of talk to what you just were saying about making everybody happy. Like, where do you come up with a conceptual idea that you think is going to work and how do you sell it? Um, If you sell it right, you shouldn't have too many revisions or pushback. The whole idea is that, um, you know, Interior designers are trained in every type of design. Not just that, we're also tapping into architecture and why certain buildings are a certain way and just, you know, knowing the history of certain areas and, you know, keeping true to the architecture of the area, um, especially in New York, especially in Florida, where you have such clear, concise types mm-hmm. of styles per area. It's important that I take a look at that first and say, okay, I'm not going to make this building you know, uber modern, if nothing around there is uber modern, it doesn't make sense. You don't want to create an eyesore. So it's really important that on a case by case, it's not about what I think is going to look pretty inside of this box, but what's going to look pretty inside this box and also make sense to their area. And I really like to educate my clients of why I make these decisions because they can't be selfish decisions, decisions, excuse Mm -hmm. me. You know, I personally, for my own home, and if I were to be hired by one of the homeowners and I walk in there and I see that they have a beautiful art collection, I may want to do all white walls in their apartment, but it may not be the right thing for the main lobby. So right. I look at all the different things. Are they trying to bring in a younger, hipper vibe? Maybe I'm going to focus on more contemporary trends, mm-hmm. um, something a little bit more relevant. If it's a more traditional building and you have the clientele that might gear their designs more towards traditional, then maybe I would do something like that with a little bit of a more relevant um, edge. Yeah. Because obviously you don't want to just put in 
what you had before. It has so, to make sense because if you look yeah. at it from your perspective too, let's say you're the, uh, you know, the, the elephant in the, in the community, you've got, you know, 10 buildings on a block. They all share a, a specific um, type of look. Maybe it's a landmarked area. And then if you went the complete opposite way, it might not be favorable for the building because people that are living there in that area really do like the aesthetic of the, the history, the design. I'm not going to speak your language, but, um, you know, I could see that being a negative if you're not staying within the confines of the style. I want to make sure that when I am presenting to a board that they understand that I've thought about them, that they know that I've thought about their needs, their end result, what their goal is. Um, like I said, are they trying to get people, entice them to purchase in that building? Are they, you know, looking to just be like everybody else on the block and we can kind of do that in a, in a unique way, but obviously you're not going to do anything that's not going to add value. So we make sure that we really stick to that. Once we're presenting, I want my design committee or my board to know that I've listened to them. And that's the, quite honestly, that's almost the first thing that needs to happen before anything. Yes, you have a budget. Yes, you now have a design committee, but as a good interior designer, you need to learn how to listen and not just put forth your ideas and your concepts and what you think is going to work, but really listen and continue to listen throughout the process. So that if there are changes, if there are modifications that they want to make, either telling them why that's not a great idea or, Hey, you know what? That is, that's a good idea. Let me, let me uh, think about that. Let me look into that. Let me change that up. And that's fine. It has to be a collaborative project sometimes. Um, And I'm all about collaboration, obviously, you know, if you're doing something and you've got even a design committee of four people not in agreement, well, I want to make sure that they're happy at the end of the day and and keeping those lines of communication open is the most imperative thing. Right. It's all it's about. We're very big on communication. Without communication, there's a lot of just anger. You know, if people don't feel like they know what's going on and they're not kept up to date, especially the people that are quote unquote paying uh, you for the service, there's obvious pushback to that. And we try to avoid that at all costs. Um, how do you like to work with the property manager of the, um, the building, the complex, whatever it may be with this project? Do you work more with the board or do you drive it with the property manager and are they acting as the interface for you in your experience? Great question. Um, I usually call them the assistant quarterback, quite honestly. Um, they're, they're the lines of communication, both between the board and the designer or the architect or the general contractor, because they're going to be the ones who are on site. Now, if you have an on-site property manager, obviously they're there day in and day out. They're seeing everything happening. So mm-hmm. they're going to have a little bit more involvement. If you have an off-site um, property manager, obviously they're not seeing as much of the day in and day out. So it really depends upon how that building operates and you know how much involvement that property manager is going to have. But for the buildings that have a little bit more involvement with the property manager, it's great to have them involved in what's going on. Obviously, if there needs to be any types of shutdowns in a certain common area, they need to be the person who's navigating that and making sure that certain things happen. If I need water shutdown or power shutdown, or, you know, we need to have certain signs or, you know, you know, signage done, or, you know, they're going to be my point person because they're going to know the guidelines for that building, how to uh, communicate with the homeowners and what needs to be done to get us back on track and keep things moving. So it's really, really important that I yeah. have the ear of that property manager throughout the project and that they're working with me. You know, if they're working against me, it's not going to, it's not going to be a great process. Well, that never ends well for anybody. If you work against, I'll never understand that. By the way, I've had this conversation so many times, especially with new clients where let's say we're doing a large scale project, such as like a a large facade job. And I will get, well, the old manager, like from the board, like the old manager refused to listen to us. They refused to uh, hire the contractor that we wanted. They refused. I'm like, what? Like they're paying you or you're paying them, you're, you're paying the manager and they're refusing to do what you said makes zero sense. Like we're all on the same team. We're hired. You're a hired hand. I'm a hired hand. We're there just for the complete operation of the specific task at hand for us as management for you. It's very specialized in the interior design field. 
I have to have that situation where the manager is more of an interference roadblock. I will never understand that. Like it just makes the manager's job a lot harder too. If that's a lot of energy and that's a lot of back and forth with the board that they just don't need to have. Like if the board wants that, I don't, I don't understand the problem with that. I know I'm going on a rant. It's so, no, it's so, it's so funny. Cause it actually brings me to even my third thing is that now you're the quarterback. I mean, how many, how many quarterbacks have you seen that go on camera and aren't dynamic and know how to communicate with people and how to mm-hmm. soften the blow. It's also our job in communicating, not just with the board, not just with the HOA, not just with, you know, the property manager, yeah, but yeah. it's knowing how to just, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just work together nicely? Because it's really also about leaving your ego at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes if we get pushed back from a property manager or a contractor that maybe they hired on their own, which brings me to a whole nother thing that we can discuss as well, Let's do you it. know, not, <laughs> there's a lot of times where I'm hired separately and they've already brought on, you know, their friend or somebody they used in the past. And it's a general contractor who now I have to manage. Right. And there's going to be some pushback because, you know, and I'm not going to say it's a male, female thing. I think we're kind of past that. But I do think that there is something to be said about people's egos getting bruised when somebody else is telling them how to do their job mm-hmm. better or yeah. how to do something Especially different. if you've done your job for 20 years. And in this case, doesn't mean that I'm not assuming that all of your jobs run this way. But if you're not doing a good job on this one client, I wouldn't, I mean, it's hard to tell somebody that's feeling like they're the expert in the field that that's the case. It's an ego thing. You exactly. Know? So I think it's important again, to bring that quarterback in to kind of go, okay, here's the way it's going to work. You're important. <laughs> you're right. important. And this is what we need from you. You're important. And this is what you have to do and kind of navigating everything. Because at the end of the day, as the quarterback, as the, as the pro- project manager, I don't want to really get involved in the minutia of anybody's egos or problems. The end result is how can we keep moving and how can we make the client happy and what do we need to do to get there? So I try and really steer clear of any of those conflicts and just work. I mean, again, it's another job. So we wear a lot of hats in this and, and, you know, in order to keep things on target and that's another thing that's very important in, in project management is timing, you know, especially when you have a, multi-unit. I I know that you manage, you know, some buildings that have upwards of 400 units, you know, Mm -hmm. how do you keep all 400 homeowner, you know, building homeowners? um, How do you keep them happy? How do you keep them going? When is this project going to end? How is this? So it's keeping track of not just the budget, but also keeping track of a timeline and making sure that everybody is doing what they need to do. How do you release the timeline when you have a client that you're working on? Do you share a document with them or a graph that shows, okay, on this week, this is supposed to happen. You know, like when I forget what they're called, but the, the diagrams with the uh, color coded, you know, cells of where we're at versus where we need to be. How are we doing? Are we behind time? Are you sharing that? Or is that more of an internal document for you? That's, that's always shared. I mean, I think it's imperative that a timeline Mm -hmm. of completion is, is shared, not necessarily from the beginning because scope of work can change, but doing it as we move along, you know, they can always add in another bathroom or another hallway or Mm -hmm. so there, it's always going to be a evolving, you know, uh, spreadsheet, but it's always good to keep them on track. You know, from the very beginning, we will say, construction is going to take this long. Yeah. Lead time on furniture is going to take this long. And usually if, if you're smart, <laughs> you're going to tack on some time because I'd rather right. them be uh, pleasantly surprised right. with how quickly things came in than to be disappointed. And there's always going to be change orders, just like Correct. any other project. So to, to build in a buffer of a few weeks. Managing expectations, right? Everything is about managing expectations. And- well, similar, I do the same thing. Anytime that there's an elevator inspection in a building, I say, okay, it's going to be down for about two hours. And then typically it's, you know, before an hour they're done. And then- And you're the oh, hero. Right. All you have to do is overestimate, but it's true. Exactly. I mean, God forbid there's an issue and then the elevator's down for two or three hours, then suddenly it turns around. Well, you only said it was going to be down too. I'm like, well, can't control everything, but we can, we can communicate the process and why this is happening. And I think, as you said before, communication, the single biggest factor of any successful project is going to be how we communicate that to everybody else. Right. Full transparency is my mantra. It always has been. Of course, there are 
always going to be unexpected things, but you kind of even lead with that. Look, there's always going to be unexpected things. I walk around, I feel like I'm a walking disclaimer 90% of my day because I want my clients to know, well, I did tell you that could have happened right. or that was potentially happened. Um, having everything in writing, especially when you're dealing with buildings is, is so important. I mean, obviously we know communication and all the facets of that and what that entails. So mm-hmm. Again, it's just important that you understand that you now have one person. Um, if you have a general contractor, and this is very important to know, the general contractor is not the person who's getting their hands dirty. The general contractor, in most cases, is outsourcing labor. Right. So you may have a crew here one day that's not the crew the next day. So they don't have as much of a vested interest in making sure that things are done exactly as they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. So I have to be the point person. Otherwise, things get lost in communication. Right. And you'll be the one constant throughout the process where, as you said, the general contractor could have different crews for different things. Um, It makes it easier for me as a manager to have you to talk to the contractor versus me talking to the contractor. It's just a whole nother level of, you know, discussions that it's not in my wheelhouse. And there's probably very few board members who would have the tools, just like I don't have the tools to be able to make the project run efficiently and on time. And, you know, with the products that we had chosen, you know, there's a lot of variables that go in. I had a building in the city that um, dismissed their, uh, their interior designer on a lobby project and hallway project. And, you know, we, we picked it up, but it's tough. I mean, it's not the thing that we do every day. You know, I defer to the people that do this and do this alone to lead the project because it's, it's a learning curve, no matter what, if you're doing something that's outside of the normal scope of operations, you're still going to have time suck because now you've got to be brought up to speed and you've got to figure out what's the best way to do this. How do we, you know, it's a lot of pieces that you guys put together and it's, it's a big job. Even on this, this is a small job. It's not even a huge building. It's a, it's a very small scope of work, but it's still such a time you know, investment to be running it. So I I know why you guys charge your fees because now I've (laughs) lived it. Um, And guess what? If something is delayed or goes wrong, now it's my fault. You know, that's not fun either. I don't, I don't enjoy having that. So I'm sure you go through that a lot. I do. You know, something that you just said about fees. And I think it's important to, to discuss that because, you know, when we were talking about decorators versus designers and, you know, the, the difference between their fees and, and all that stuff, many times, especially my residential clients will say, oh, I brought somebody in here for a consultation. You know, I don't want to necessarily talk badly about the person who, who they brought in before me, but they brought in a decorator, let's say. And that decorator is actually charging the same thing as me. Well, you know, that's insulting to my practice. And of course, I want <laughs> to be very forthcoming about that, but I hold it back and I don't yeah. say anything. And I just explain to them why I'm different or what more I can bring to the table or you know, all of those things. However, not every building you have might have the budget to hire me or Mm -hmm. assume a decorator who is charging the same amount. Um, And how do you navigate that? So the other thing that you can also do, and this is kind of just like an inside tip for you, is that you may say, we don't have the budget to hire a high-end interior design firm. And again, this goes against what I would say, because obviously I want to be the one hired on a job, but there's also another facet to this. is hiring an interior designer as a consultant. Um, whether or not you already have a general contractor in you know, your back pocket that you work with, that you like, that you've had a good experience with, that you know can do this job, but you need a little bit of guidance. You don't necessarily need the interior designer to act as the full-scale project manager, but you need some ideas on paint. You need some ideas yeah. on flooring or budgeting or whatnot, you can bring somebody in who might charge an hourly fee or a set, you know, 10 hour incremental fee or a per square footage fee to just consult with them, which we do often. And again, with this e-design, you know, you know, restrictions with COVID now, we've been doing quite a bit of consulting um, Mm -hmm. remotely. So it's coming in and taking a look and saying, hey, we think this, this, and this would really work. We've done a little bit of research on the surrounding areas and your goal and just kind of acting as that, which can also save a building a lot of money because they don't need to have you there for the whole project. Maybe the in-house property manager is going to act more as the project manager, or maybe the general contractor who, again, you have a relationship with and history in working with them 
you feel comfortable enough to have them be the ones managing the project. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And again, even if it's a decorator versus an interior designer, both can be consultants on that. Right. So it's looking at your budget and deciding what's best for you. Um, if we get contacted by, you know, property manager or an HOA, we might even give them the suggestion of working with us that way, because maybe it's good for us to do that building. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a good way to build a relationship because that management company has several buildings. And if we continue to have, you know, a good relationship and good outcome with them, then it's a win-win. It's an avenue into potential new business. Exactly. We're all looking to make our businesses better. You know, at the end of the day, we're providing a service, but we're also looking to grow. What's the, in your opinion, what's the area for a building to concentrate on the most to raise the values? So if, should I be spending money on the paint, the wallpaper, the furnishings, the, you know, the desk for the front, you know, concierge, like what, where are the things that I should be focusing for maximum value for my buck, you know? It's such a good question, but I think that a lot of people know what you see first, your first impression of something is always going to be what hits you in the face and goes, oh, okay, it's this. You're not going behind each of the doors at that point. Maybe you're not taking the elevator up and going to see the hallways. So if you needed to start someplace to just kind of give yourself a little bit of a refresh facelift, I always say common area, common space. First thing you see, if there's a hallway, a check-in desk, front door even. It's what you do from that front door in that gives your first impression, that gives your your balance. And then it allows you to kind of create a footprint for, okay, this is the look we're going for. Now, when we're ready to phase two or phase three or increase our budgets, or now you've got happy homeowners (laughs) who say, this is great. We love this. What can we do next? We kind of have a basis for keeping continuity between the design now to bring it into the hallways or adjust the elevator, or maybe they even have a conference room or, you know, a, yeah. Or the gym, the kids room, I mean, the playroom, there's so many different areas that you could then marry the, the design of the, the interior space that you've done and then kind of carry it through the other common areas. Exactly. The test case. Exactly. And I think that even going back to the original budget, you might have a board that, again, has no idea of how much things cost. And they come in and they say they want to do all 10 spaces. Well, we might also be the person to say, okay, let's start here. Then this will be the next phase. This will be the next phase. It's also knowing the demographic. It's priorities and demographic. Exactly. Understanding that this is a building that has an active young, um, you know, clientele that is in the gym every single day. Well, maybe phase two is the gym. Yeah. Let's give the, let's give the people what they want and really focus on ways to continue to make them happy and for them to feel the value of their investment. Yeah. It's nice to live with a David Barton gym inside your building. Exactly. Right. So I think that, you know, it, it's just, again, having that point person advocate who understands the people inside the building, inside the box and the surrounding areas to make sure that you're getting the best bang for your buck, the best return on your investment. And honestly, having an end results that you can feel all good about. It's like a, um, it's like a psychological exercise because you learn about what everybody feels is important to them. You learn about the residents and what's important to them. And then you can, you know, I, all the spaces that you do have a certain feeling, right? When you walk in. Mm -hmm. So the feeling is the most important part of how do you want to feel when you get home? You know? Well, I always say when I deal with my residential clients, I'm a marriage counselor. And when I deal with my <laughs> hospitality and commercial clients, I'm a therapist. You know, I'm, you have to know you're a psychologist who's understanding every facet of these people that they've, you've met for even a minute. So you've got to be a really, really good judge of character yeah. and people and kind of putting all the puzzle pieces together. Because I, like you said, when you were dealing with residential, it's just a husband and wife. Right. I only have two people in the room who yeah. are going to fight. But when you're dealing with a a co-op condo situation, obviously I've got to take all of these personalities. (laughs) Not only personalities, but you got to, you're, you're sometimes unpacking years of annoyance between themselves that because boards are just like married couples, you know, there's seven to 11 of them, but they, they have hit their history and 
maybe the annoyance of the decision two years ago that one board member didn't like is now going to come back to rear itself and it has nothing to do with you, you know, but I, I deal with the same thing too, but you have to be, you have to have enough of that EQ, you know, the emotional intelligence to, to kind of read the room. And when we're pitching our services, this is more of just like, I guess, a, a business owner to a business owner discussion versus the actual type of business that you have. But I just think walking into a room of seven to 11 people that, you're trying to, you know, sell a certain, in your case, an aesthetic, in my, in my case, a property management business, we're all doing the same thing and we're all interacting and you quickly learn, you know, the, the makeup of the board and the tenor of the board and just the temperature. Um, but it sounds like you're doing a great service that uh, done the right way, which it sounds like you have it down, could add a, a really great value to the building and take something that's been sitting for possibly since the inception of the building 30, 40 years ago to bring it up to date now and bring it up to the neighborhood because the neighborhood has changed no matter what. If it's not like a landmarked interior space, the neighborhoods have probably been um, uh, renovated. The, all the buildings have been renovated. The you know Maybe it's gentrification. Maybe it's you know different just income levels. You, we don't know what's going on in these buildings. So taking all of that information and just parsing through it is part of the job, right? Exactly. It's seeing the big picture of the whole, not just the space, but everything surrounding that and who the people are that you want to be there, who are there and, you know, and, and just navigating all of those moving parts. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover on our amazing podcast that hopefully everybody's still listening to? Um, I think we've tapped into a lot, obviously, if, you know, I'd love to be back here as a guest anytime, if anybody has any anytime. questions and, you know, how just- could people, so joyreneinteriors.com, right? That's your email. That, I'm that's sorry. That's your website. website. And if they want to get in touch with you, how would they reach out to you? It's joyreneinteriors at gmail.com. Okay. And that's the best way. Um, and on my website, obviously, there is a contact page that has, you know, our direct phone number, email, et cetera. It has all of our Instagram, which is at joyreneinteriors. Um, you know, we, we like to just keep up with all the great trends. But obviously, as an interior designer, we work with every kind of design style. Um, so if people are looking for residential, commercial, hospitality, and have their own vision or own idea, we just bring it to life. So yeah, you know, we're, we're happy to help in any fa- you know facet of, of design for any of those types of clients. Well, it's awesome. I do follow you on Instagram. Got to get you on TikTok. I talked about TikTok last week on my last episode episode 37. That was exciting, but I'm at Mark in real estate. So if anybody wants to follow me, feel free, but. And if anybody out there wants to be my social media coordinator while I'm actually working, that would be great too. (laughs) You may get a call. You never know. Yeah. But it's been uh, great having you again. If people want to email the show, NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. Try to make it easy. NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. Again, I'm Mark Levine and you can call me directly. It goes to my cell phone at 212-335-2723 extension 201. Again, that's 212-335-2723 extension 201. And we will hopefully have joy back in the future. And, uh, I wish you a great 2021 and hopefully we'll work together soon. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. It's been no great. problem. I will talk to you soon. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.